If Walls Could Talk, PC. Ladies and gentlemen, before we begin with today's episode, a quick shout out from the one and only future UFC champion, Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell. Hey, it's Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell here telling y'all that you better watch that If Walls Could Talk podcast with Siri Lowe. If you don't, you're missing out. So check it out. All right. What were we talking about? <laughs> um, what were we talking about? I, don't know. I was telling you about the fucking jobs that you can find in LA yeah. uh, for like podcasting shit or video editing, I guess, if you're into that. And then you started reading Man's Search for Meaning. Victor <laughs> Frankel, 20 pages of it. Oh, well, we didn't even start it, though. We got to the preface and now. Preface. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like two page, like three pages. Not that bad. I'm trying to show you jobs. Experiences in a concentration camp. This book is gonna give me a little insight into a the job meaning. Will give you insight into a little bit of how to live. But to answer your question, no, I wouldn't be interested in, like, because I'm telling you, it doesn't take that long to make it like. Look, edit and produce a, a podcast episode dollars an hour 40 hours a week that's, that's already a lo- that's already a lot less than what i'm making right now but it's an internship you have to have experience and then you can get hired by the big guys but that's the thing though i don't want to do that i want to work on my own podcast i don't want to work on somebody else's podcast uh, yeah, you, do it. you know do it. which i do need to start investing more time because when i had started the podcast i was pretty active like i was for a month, I did one a week, and then I slowed down. I even got an interview with Obed, and nope. the artist. What's his name? Obed Padilla. Oh, I don't know who that is. Look up, um, go on YouTube or Spotify, and look up Through the Night. It's a dope song. It's fucking dope. And I just reached out to him and chatted with him back and forth. Asked him if he'd be down to be on, my, on the podcast. And he said, yeah, and I drove down to Oceanside. Oceanside. And we, you know, we recorded the episode on my, on my fucking iPhone, which if you listen to it, the quality sucks. You can't even really hear what we're saying. Really. And, um, yeah, and then, like, after we just, we went to this carne asada spot. I got a, I forgot what I got. I think I got a burrito. But it was bomb. And then just got back. He had to go. So I went back home. But it was pretty. That's cool. But see you that that's the thing though. Like I just, you set your mind to it and you just, like you do it. You you don't give a fuck. You just reach out to people and you yeah, ask them. Do you would do you like it. to be in my or you you know you gotta. See if a person can carry a conversation. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. 
I believe that wholeheartedly. But we were talking about something else. Cartels. Yeah. Oh, Loseta. Oh, the video. The video that I saw. Oh, God, yeah. So, we're, okay, so, me and Maury, by the way, I'm talking to my friend Maury. Say hey. Hi. I'm Maury. I'm <laughs> Maury. Uh, Maury in the house. I don't know who that is. Who's Povich? Who's Maury Povich? No. Oh, I didn't know his last name. I know Maury. Yeah. When the first time I saw when when, when was the first time you saw the Maury show? When you were five. Who was watching? Like your family was watching, and you were just there, or you or like, right? So, so when I would stay home from school in like elementary school, in the summers, uh, like you know, summer vacation, your parents go to work. You really have nothing to do. They tell you like you can't go outside or whatever. And so, Maury's on. I'm flipping through the channels. Maury's on. I don't remember like the first time I saw it, <laughs> but I'm like in fourth grade or third grade, and it's like my shit. Like, in that one summer vacation, I don't know what grade I was in, but I would, I knew the time, and I would watch, and it would be two episodes back-to-back, and I'd be like, oh, hell yeah. 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 And I'd be so into it, like, oh, damn, that bitch is not the father. So you know? And I'd be like, damn, bitch, get him, get him. <laughs> For real. Yeah. Dude, I'm like, what, like? nine years old how old are you when you're in fourth grade third grade yeah like nine right because so of us were five years older than whatever grade that you're in so fourth grade you'd be nine years old yeah i think five that yeah old. fourth grade nine years old but yeah back to that um solosetas they they weren't i think they're a cartel now but when so I th- I believe it was it was a cartel de Sinaloa the Sinaloa cartel that would use them as as like uh, as a hammer on th- on their enemies. So any enemies they would have, they would send these special oper ex uh, Mexican special operatives to the enemies, and then they got so b- bar- uh, barbaric with they would send videos and just pictures and stuff, beheadings, and leave like a note and you know in like in public public display like if it was fucking the middle east you know and and i saw a video my sister sent it to me and i asked her she was like oh have you seen this video and i was like no send it over you know and so she sent it to me and there was this guy who so imagine him imagine his wrist tied tied together right and I, th- the guy's like, uh, he has no 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 hands, so you just see his his bo- his yeah, ri- like yeah. his wrists. Mm-hmm. You just see the bone and like meat because like they chopped off his fucking hands, yeah. or they like ripped them off or something because it wasn't like a clean cut, you know. Oh, ew, dirty. And so, so the guy's like screaming and squirming around, and in Spanish they're telling him like to shut the fuck up. And the, so they're like, Cállate a la verga, you know, like, Cállate a la verga. And they're just like with a box cutter, they're like t- cutting his, the inside, of the, like his tongue 
so they're like shut the fuck up and they're like cutting his tongue with with a razor blade and the guy's just like like you know like muffled crying and yelling and squirming around and he has no fucking hands and was he on his knees no he was laying uh face up and he was like in a tiled bathroom or something and so i had read a book and it was about ms-13 in san salvador and losetas which also they operate as well in in, in salvador so do you know about coyotes coyotes the people that that you pay them and they 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 cross you across the border right mm -hmm. and so in the book i read i forgot what what the name of the book was but it's a really nice book like it's not nice it's like by like explicit but it's real it's true it was like this the author like really went to mexico and salvador and, and interviewed people and like he really risked his life for to write this book you know just for the for information to spread in like an insight you know mm -hmm. and so yeah so a coyote back then you would pay one guy and he himself he would cross you over you and a group of people you would get crossed over mm -hmm. boom maybe he passes you to another guy in the u.s who like picks you up and then you know that's it it's simple but now especially if you're coming from another country like further south like salvador or guatemala or whatever there's a coyote even in mexico a coyote doesn't it's not a guy that crosses you over himself anymore now he pays it's a person that's in contact with people that are going to be along your way that he has he pays and he pays off and by pays I mean people that he works with that are part of that process in crossing you over the border or they have to pay off which means it's people that have that that own a certain territory and whether it be drug cartels or you know like los setos or just gangs like MS13 they need to be paid off if not they kidnap you and they do or they kill you on the spot right And so Los Zetas are also people along the way that you have to pay off now when you're going to cross from like S Salvador. And uh, there's a story in there in the book where this lady, I, I forget, dude, the book is fucking amazing though. I got it at Barnes and Noble one day, like randomly too. And anyway, to remember. I, I can look it up right now, but I, I, I need a, down. I need a Joe Rogan's a fucking dude that, that looks up the shit. Oh yeah. What's his name? I don't know. That Jerry. Up, is it Jerry? No. I was, that's crazy. I was about to say Jerry too. Or Jeremy. Who cares? I don't know. I need one of those. I need. I need somebody to like Google shit for me. Um. And where was I at? Herself, oh yeah. So. I. That's true. I have my phone. Oh <laughs> shit. Okay. Lazy. So what's the book? Hold on, let me look up the book. Like, damn, I wish I had someone to Google it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you the side eye. I really <laughs> wish somebody would Google this for me. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be like the nicest thing somebody would do. I wish I had someone who could just like give me money or something. <laughs> give me money. Awesome. Let's see. Was I going to look up the book? Uh, book, crime, and... Uh, Salvador, Salvador, and 
Guatemala. So what's the history? Like, why do Mexicans hate Salvadorians? Because my grandma just said that. And I was like, I don't fucking know. I didn't know that was a thing. Why do we hate Sal- Salvadorians? Why do Mexicans hate Salvadorians? Yeah, she said, why do Mexicans Ooh, there it is. There it is. The name of the book is A History of Violence Living and Dying in Central America by o- Oscar Martinez. Ooh. Yeah. That's a good fucking book, dude. I read it in one like one sitting. I read it in one sitting. I sat down and I read it and boom, that was it. I have a list of too many books to read, but I'll edit. You just gotta start with one, bruh. Start with one start with the it doesn't even have to be like this kind of book. I know, yeah. I started off with uh a Chapo book. Like it was just Ooh. about El Chapo. Ooh. And it was interesting, like yeah. How he got to jail when he got out. I read that. Who like what like it, it speaks a lot about like his romances in jail too. Yeah, like he would write love letters to like prisoners that. and you like female fiction. Yeah, I like real shit, you, you know. Do. And I like that's the most interesting shit. Yeah. Cause I mean I never read Harry Potter. I read Diary Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Like when I was a kid, Diary yeah. Diary of a Wimpy Kid it was my shit, yeah. Yeah, dude, you exercise your mind when you yeah. read. I was trying to tell that to my ex, and he was like, hmm. And I get that, like, everyone has their own thing that they're into. I just think reading is, like, it, it keeps you, like, thinking and shit. I agree, yeah. It's healthy for the mind. It's, like, medicine for the mind. Medicine for yeah. the mind. I mean, you're ex- it's, it's the gym for the mind. Cause you're just you're exercising exactly, it, you yeah. know. Like every organ is important. And you're also one of them. and you're also using your imagination, cause it's not a movie, it doesn't have pictures, and it makes you just really like use be with be your mind, yeah, you know, like really just think, sit there and yeah, you know. You know what he told me? You know why he probably doesn't like it? He's one of those people that he can't picture things in his mind. Have you heard of those people? Yeah. Can you do that? I mean, I can't really, like... Visualize it? I don't know. I, I don't even want to say I can't visualize things, but, like, maybe if I just really focus, I don't know. Because I've heard of that. Like, people see things different as well. Like, even lights is a certain glare, yeah, right? It's like it has a name for it. It's called, like, like visuophrasia or something. I don't know. Visuophrasia. Someone who can't, like, visualize things in their head. Like, mm-hmm. me... If I want to, like, picture a giant apple right here, like, I can see it right now. But there are some people who just, like, they can't see things, like, in their mind. Are you one of them? I don't know. Like, close your eyes. Can you, like, picture a beach? So close my eyes. Picture a beach. Picture a beach. The waves. Can you see it? I see it. I said, like, close your eyes and picture your mom. Can you see her, like, in your head? Your dad? Like, not that quick. Can you? Yeah, totally. Really? Like, a vivid image in your mind? I try to picture my grandma. I can see her in my mind. Like, it's she's not there, but, you know. Yeah. I wonder, you're like my ex. Mm, I can't. I can't. Yeah, like, not that quick. I really have to focus and... And even then, it's not really of a like a image. 
like a visual it's more of a it's that but also a feeling of that specific person's presence i don't know in my mind i don't know So, okay, so we got to the first page. All right, let me read the first page. No, that's a grass, a grasshopper? Grasshopper. Cricket. Get it, Teddy. Get it, Teddy. Teddy. All right. And this is the book. I'm going to read a little bit. If you guys want to skip. This is a pretty interesting fucking book, though. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankl. Let's get into it. Experiences in a concentration camp. This book does not claim to be an account of facts and events, but of personal experiences. Experiences which millions of prisoners have suffered time and again. It is the inside story of a concentration camp told by one of its survivors this tale is not concerned with the great horrors which have already been described often enough though less often believed but with the multitude of small torments in other words it will try to answer this question how was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner most of the events described here did not take place in the large and famous camps, but in the small ones where most of the real extermination took place. This story is not about the suffering and death of great heroes and martyrs, nor is it about the prominent capos, prisoners who acted as trustees, having special privileges, or well-known prisoners. Thus, it is not so much concerned with the sufferings of the mighty, but the sacrifices, the crucifixion, and the deaths of the great army of unknown and unrecorded victims. It was these common prisoners who bore no distinguishing marks on their sleeves, whom the capos really despised. While these ordinary prisoners had little or nothing to eat, the capos were never hungry. In fact, many of the capos feared better in camp than they had in their entire lives. Oh, what? In fact, many of the capos fared better in the camp than they had in their entire lives. Often, they were harder on the prisoners than, the, than were the guards, and beat them more cruelly than the SS men did. These capos, of course, were chosen only from those prisoners whose characters pr promised to make them suitable for such pr procedures. And if they did not comply with what was expected of them, they were immediately demoted. They soon became much like the SS men and the camp wardens, and may. Wait, they soon became much like the SS men and the camp wardens, and may be judged on a similar psychological basis. It is easy for the outsider to get the wrong conception of camp life—a conception mingled with sentiment and pity. Little does he know of the hard fight for existence, which raged among the prisoners. This was an unrelenting struggle for daily bread and for life itself, for one's own sake or for that of a good friend. Let us take the case of a transport which was officially announced to transfer a certain number of prisoners at, to another camp, but it was a fairly safe guess that its final destination would be the gas chambers. A selection of sick or feeble prisoners incapable of work would be sent to one of the big central camps which were fitted with gas chambers and crematoriums. 
The selection process was the signal for a free fight among all the prisoners, or of group against group. All that mattered was that one's own name and that of one's friend were crossed off the list of victims. Though everyone knew that for each man saved, another victim had to be found. A definite number of prisoners had to go with each transport. It did not really matter which, since each of them was nothing but a number. On their admission to the camp, at least this was the method in Auschwitz, all their documents had been taken from them, together with their other possessions. Each prisoner, therefore, had had an opportunity to claim a fictitious name or profession, and for various reasons many did this. The authorities were interested only in the captives' name uh, numbers. These numbers were often tattooed on their skin, and also had to be sewn to a certain spot on the trousers, jacket, or coat. Any guard who wanted to make a, ch a charge against a prisoner just glanced at his number, and how, he, how we dreaded such glances. He never asked for his name. To return to the convoy about to depart, there was neither time nor desire to consider moral or ethical issues. Every man was controlled by one thought only, to keep himself alive for the family waiting for him at home, and to save his friends. With no hesitation, therefore, he would arrange for another prisoner, another number, to take his place in the transport. As I have already mentioned, the process of selecting cables was a negative one. Only the most brutal of the prisoners were chosen for this job, although there were some happy exceptions. But apart from the selection of cables which was undertaken by the SS, there was a sort of self-selecting process going on the whole time among all the prisoners. On the average, only, the, only those prisoners could keep alive who, after years of trekking from camp to camp, had lost all scruples in their fight for existence. They were prepared to use every means, honest and otherwise even brutal force, theft and betrayal of their friends in order to save themselves. We who have come back, by the aid of many lucky chances or miracles, whatever one may choose to call them, we know the best of us did not return. Many factual accounts about concentration camps are already on record here. Facts will be significant only as far as they are part of man's experience. It is the exact nature of these experiences that the following essay will attempt to describe. For those who have been in, inmates in a camp, it will attempt to explain their experiences in the light of present-day knowledge. And for those who have never been inside, it may help them to comprehend and above all to understand the experiences of that only too small percentage of prisoners who survived and who now find life very difficult. These former prisoners often say, we dislike talking about our experiences. No explanations are needed for those who have been inside, and the others will understand neither how we felt then nor how we feel now. To attempt a methodical presentation of the subject is very difficult, as psychology requires a certain scientific detachment. But does a man who makes his observations while he himself is a prisoner possess the necessary detachment? Such detachment is granted to the outsider, but he is too far removed to make any statements of real value. Only the man inside knows. His judgments may not be objective. His evaluations may be, put, may be out of proportion. This is inevitable. An attempt must be made to avoid any personal bias, and that is the real difficulty of a book of this kind. At times, it will be necessary to have the courage to tell 
of every intimate experiences. I had intended to write this book anonymously using my prisoner number only, but when the manuscript was completed, I saw that as an anonymous public publication it could lose half its value and that i must have the courage to state my convictions openly i therefore refrain from deleting any of the passages in spite of an intense dislike of exhibitionism i shall leave it to others to distill the contents of this book into dry theories these might become a contribution to the psychology of prison life which was investigated after the first world war and which acquainted us with the syndrome of barbed wire sickness we are indebted to the Second World War for enriching our knowledge of the psychopathology of the masses. If I may quote a variation of the well-known phrase and title of a book by Leban, for the war gave us the war of nerves and it gives us the concentration camp. For the war gave us the war of nerves and it gave us the concentration camp. As this story is about my experiences as an ordinary prisoner, it is important that I mention, not without pride, that I was not employed as a psychiatrist in camp, or even as a doctor, except for the last few weeks. A few of my colleagues were lucky enough to be employed in poorly heated first aid post applying bandages made of scraps of waste paper, but I was number 119,104, and most of the time I was digging and laying tracks for railway lines. At one time, my job was to dig a tunnel without help for a water main under a road. This feat did not go unrewarded. Just before Christmas 1944, I was presented with a gift of so-called premium coupons. These were issued by the construction firm to which we were practically sold as slaves. The firm paid the camp authorities and fixed price per day per prisoner. The coupons cost the firm 50 fennings each and could be exchanged for six cigarettes, often weeks later, although they sometimes lost their validity. I became the proud owner of a token worth 12 cigarettes, but most important, the cigarettes could be exchanged for 12 soups, and 12 soups were often a real, a very real respite form, respite, often a very real respite from starvation. What does that mean? Respite. He doesn't know. Very real relief from starvation. Yeah, good. Context clues. All right, let's get back into it. The priv- Go inside, bro. No, I want to. I want to chill out here. Yeah. Well, I like the mountains right there. The palm trees, the the breeze. Well, go, bro. Skedaddle. (laughs) Get it done. Get it done. There you go. Absolutely. The privilege of actually smoking cigarettes was reserved for the capo who had his 
assured quota of weekly coupons, or possibly for a prisoner who worked as a foreman in a warehouse or workshop and received a few cigarettes in exchange for doing dangerous jobs. The only exceptions to this were those who had lost the will to live and wanted to enjoy their last days. Thus, when we saw a comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up faith in his strength to carry on and once lost the will to live seldom return. When one examines the vast amount of material which has been amassed as a result of many prisoners' observations and experiences, three phases of the inmate's mental reactions to camp life become apparent. The period of following his admission, the period when he is well entrenched in camp routine, and the period following his release and liberation. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. Wow. Under certain conditions, shock may even precede the prisoner's formal admission to the camp. I shall give as an example the circumstances of my own admission. 1,500 persons had been traveling by train for several days and nights. There were 80 people in each coach. All had to lie on top of their luggage, the few remnants of their personal possessions. The carriages were so full that only the top parts of the windows were free to let in the grave dawn. Everyone expected the train to head for some commute. Uh, some. Everyone expected the train to head for some munition factory, in which we would be employed as forced labor. We did not know whether we were still in Silesia or already in Poland. The engine's whistle had an uncanny sound, like a cry for help sent out in com- commiseration for the unhappy load which it was destined to lead into perdition. Then the train shunted, obviously nearing a main station. Suddenly, a cry broke from the ranks of the anxious passengers. There is a sign! Auschwitz! Everyone's heart missed a beat at that moment. Auschwitz. The very name stood for all that was horrible. Gas chambers, crematoriums, massacres. Slowly, almost hesitatingly, the train moved on as if it wanted to spare its passengers the dreadful realization as long as possible. Auschwitz. With the progressive dawn, the outlines of an immense camp became visible. Long stretches of several rows of barbed wire fences watched towers, searchlights, and long columns of ragged human figures, gray in the grayness of dawn, trekking along the straight, desolate roads to what destination we did not know. There were isolated shouts and whistles of command. We did not know their meaning. My imagination led me to see gallows with people dangling on them. I was horrified, but this was just as well, because step by step we had to become accustomed to a terrible and immense horror. Eventually, we moved into the station. The initial silence was interrupted by shouting commands. We were to hear those rough, shrill tones from then on, over and over again in in all the camps. Their sound was almost like the last cry of a victim, and yet there was a difference. It had a rasping hoarseness, as if it came from the throat of a man who had to keep shouting like that. A man who was being murdered again and again. 
The carriage doors were flung open and a small detachment of prisoners stormed inside. They were stripped uniforms. They wore stripped uniforms. Their heads were shaved, but they looked well fed. They spoke in every possible European tongue and all with a certain amount of humor, which sounded grotesque under the circumstances. Like a drowning man clutching a straw, my inborn optimism, which has often controlled my feelings, even in the most desperate situations, clung to this thought. These prisoners look quite well. They seem to be in good spirits and even laugh. Who knows? I might manage to share their favorable position. In psychiatry, there is a certain condition known as delusion of deprive. The condemned man, immediately before his execution, gets the illusion that he might be reprieved at the very last moment. Reprived at the very last moment. We too clung to shreds of hope and believed to the last moment that it would not be so bad. Just the sight of the red cheeks and round faces of those prisoners was a great encouragement. Little did we know that little did we know then that they formed a specially chosen elite who for years had been the receiving squad for new transports as they rolled into the station day after day. They took charge of the new arrivals and their luggage including scarce items and smuggled jewelry Auschwitz must have been a strange spot in this Europe in this Europe of the last years of the war there must have been unique treasures of gold and silver platinum and diamonds not only in the huge storehouses but also in the hands of the SS 1500 captives were cooped up in a shed built to accommodate prob probably 200 at the most we were cold and hungry, and there was not enough room for everyone to squat on the bare ground, let alone lie down. One five-ounce piece of bread was our only food in four days. Yet I heard the senior prisoners in charge of the shed bargaining with one member of the receiving party about a type pin made of platinum and diamonds. Most of the profits would eventually be traded for liquor snaps. I do not remember anymore just how many thousands of marks were needed. To purchase a quantity of schnapps required for a great for a gay evening in this book gay means uh, a good time a happy a good evening but i do know that those long-term prisoners needed schnapps under such conditions who would blame them for trying to dope themselves there was another group of prisoners who got liquor supplied in almost unlimited quantities by the SS. These were the men who were employed with the, in the gas chambers and crematoriums and who knew very well that one day they would be relieved by a new shift of men and that they would have to leave their enforced role of executioner and become victims themselves. Nearly everyone in our transport lived under the illusion that we would be reprieved, that, everyone, that everything would yet be well. We did not realize the meaning behind the scene that was to follow presently. We were told to leave our luggage in the train and to fall into two lines. Women on one side, men on the other, in order to file past a senior SS officer. Surprisingly enough, I had the courage to hide my haversack under my coat. My line filed past the officer, man by man. I realized that I would be dangerous if the officer spotted my bag. He would at least knock me down. I knew that from previous experience. Instinctively, I straightened on approaching the officer so that he would not notice my heavy load. Then I was face to face with him. He was a tall man who's lo who looked slim and fit in his spotless uniform. 
What a contrast to us, who were untidy and grimy after our long journey. He had assumed an attitude of carelessness, ease, supporting his right elbow with his left hand. His right hand was lifted, and with the forefinger of that hand he pointed very leisurely to the right or to the left. None of us had the slightest idea of the sinister meaning behind that little movement of a man's finger, pointing now to the right and now to the left, but far more frequently to the left. It was my turn. Somebody whispered to me that to be sent to the right side would mean work, the way to the left being for the sick and those incapable of work who would be sent to a special camp. I just waited for things to take their course, the first of many such times to come. My haversack weighed me down a bit to the left, but I made an effort to walk upright. The SS man looked me over, appeared to hesitate, then put both his hands on my shoulders. I tried very hard to look smart, and he turned my shoulders very slowly until I faced right, and I moved over to that side. So I made it to the right side, which means work. The significance of the finger game was explained to us in the evening. It was the far selection, it was the first selection, the first verdict made on our existence or non-existence. For the great majority of our transport, about 90% it meant death. Their sentence was carried out within the next few hours. Those who were sent to the left were marched from the station straight to the crematorium. This building, as I was told by someone who worked there, had the word bath written over its doors in several European languages. On entering, each prisoner was handed a piece of soap, and then, but mercifully, mercifully, I do not need to describe the events which followed. Many accounts have been written about this terror, this horror. We who, have, who were saved, the minority of our transport, found out the truth in the evening. I inquired from prisoners who had been there for some time where my colleague and friend P had been sent. Was he sent to the left side? Yes, I replied. Then you could see him there, I was told. Where? A hand pointed to the chimney a few hundred yards off, which was sending a column of flame into the gray sky of Poland. It dissolved into a sinister cloud of smoke. That's where your friend is, floating up to heaven, was the answer. But I still did not understand until the truth was explained to me in plain words. But I was telling things out of their turn. From a psychological point of view, we had a long, long way in front of us from the break of that dawn at the station until our first night's rest at the camp. Escorted by SS guards with loaded guns, we were made to run from the station, past electrically charged barbed wire through the camp to the cleansing station. For those of us who had passed the first election, this was a real bath. Again, our illusions of reprieve found confirmation. The SS men seemed almost charming. Soon we found out their reason. They were nice to us as long as they saw watches on our wrists and could persuade us in well-meaning tones to hand them over. Would we not have to hand over all our possessions anyway? And why should not that relatively nice person have the watch? Maybe one day he would do one a good turn. But I think I'm going to stop there. Uh, when I bought this book, I just bought it um, based off the recommendation that it was 
that the I guess no one that the thesis revolved around ways of men. You know, I mean, like the book is titled "Man's Search for Meaning," and so. Just searching for some meaning, baby. Just searching for some meaning. I'm out here in the backyard in Rancho Cucamonga. A nice summer breeze. Went to the gym today, just showered, feeling good. Feeling good. I made a banana. So I haven't been uploading any episodes uh, as much as I'd like to but I'm gonna get back to it alright I don't wanna eat on the on the mic this is not fucking what's that shit called like when 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 they eat food and they record the sound. That is disgusting, dude. I hate that shit. And here I go doing it. much to talk about though I mean let's see search for meaning search for meaning I have no idea what the fuck to talk about and that happens sometimes right that happens sometimes and you just gotta do what you gotta do. Pretty sure the neighbors can hear me, which is kinda embarrassing, but the show must go on. Let's see. So I guess you're kinda bummed out that I started reading a fucking book <laughs> about the tragedies of the concentration camps. In Poland and Auschwitz specifically, which is really unfortunate, you know, and it's it shows you how people are followers, and you see that you know they follow a tribe, a tribe mentality. You see it in World War Two. You see it now. With liberals and just, you know, the, the cons- far-right conservatives are just stuck in their ways instead of meeting in the middle and coming to, you know, like, just working together. Because at the end of the day, we live in the same fucking country. And it's like, we should be on the same side. We live in the same fucking country. So I don't know what the fuck's going on. Why are we so divided? 
and uh, and I actually I was listening to one of Jocko Willink's first podcast episodes from his show, and he talked about this book he read, or he was actually I think he was reading the book, and it was a book about I forgot where the fuck. There's a country I think in Africa, and I feel so ignorant for not <laughs> remembering the place, but uh. Basically, the people who are Christian there too, and they live a similar lifestyle than we do. It's, it's I believe, is a third world country, but they still have you know a similar way of living that that we do, and they have Christian values, which is pretty much the default religion for the United States. Anyway, so these people, I forget. I think their 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 leader, their president, or something of a certain party. He says, we got to massacre this type of people. And they, they look the same. Like It's like you're killing your neighbor, you know? Because the mayor said, kill these type of people. And it's not even like white or anything, but it's like a certain tribe or a certain lineage. And people were killing other people with machetes and... I really need to listen to it again. I mean, it's it's horrifying what happened, but it's it was so easy. It made civilized people turn so easily without question, without hesitation, without resistance on their fellow neighbor and just start violently butchering them. Women, children, men, everybody. Raping women. I mean, it's fucking like just complete mayhem. No mercy. To any sex or age. You know? But yeah, very unfortunate. Um, there's a few things I wanted to talk about, but I just can't remember anymore. I always write... Not always, I shouldn't say always, but I sometimes write topics to talk about on my notes. Now I can talk about one of these, let me see. Let me see. Okay. No, that's a good one. I feel like I went on a tangent today and it's not that... I don't know. I feel like I'm all over the place, and that topic that I have written down here, it's so good that I want to lead an episode, the next episode with that. Let's see. Um... Mexican music. Los Tigres del Norte. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Mexican music. I'm Mexican. I'm Mexican Peruvian, so I grew up listening to Los. T- My mom's favorite was Los Tigres and Norte. She really loved them. I think she saw them live like three times. And I remember being very little, very young, like preschool, maybe before I even started school. And she would put Los Tigres and Norte, like La Puerta Negra or something. And I'd get on her shoe. I'd step on her shoes, and we'd. She'd hold my hand, and we'd dance. 
That's fine. I also remember being little and uh, going out with my mom, my aunt, and my cousins who were around the same age, and my sister. My little sister wasn't born yet. I was, you know, it was just me and my older sister. So we all go to uh, to Savon or uh, Savon, I think. I don't fucking know. It's like a pharmacy. It's like a Walgreens. I don't know. And uh, we go. And you know, you know when your mom is with your aunt or a friend or whatever, she's talking. They ignore the shit out of you. So I'm little, and my mom's talking with my aunt, shopping around, browsing. I'm just there, in uh, in Spanish, you know. I'm like, "Ama, and mommy, I need to go, you know, take a piss or I need to take a shit." And so, she's like, "All right, hold on," and she keeps talking. She keeps talking, and so like, I was like, "Fuck, Eddie." Now, so then I call, you know, I call her again. I'm like, "I need to go poop. I need to go." She's like, "All right, let's go." And so we go, and on the way there. I have to fart. And she's like opening it. I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm about to shit myself. <laughs> she's like, we're almost there. We're almost there. And I fart. And I shat all over my favorite Spider-Man boxers. They were my first boxers ever. And they were Spider-Man. And I shat all over them. <laughs> I shat all over them. And I asked my mom, like, can we, can we, can we save them? Can we wash them? She's like, nah, those are going to the trash. I am not cleaning those. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah, I remember I was mad at my mom because, you know, she didn't she didn't take me seriously, and I shat myself at a save on. That's crazy. Isn't it crazy how your youth feels like it was like maybe a whole 20 years and like as you get older the years go by faster. That's crazy. I I think it's because as a kid you live in the moment and so you're really focused on what's happening in the you know now in every moment. And then as you get older, you plan things and you hope for time to go by fast because you want to get out of work or you want to do this or you got a concert next week and you want, you know. And so that just makes time go by faster because you're so eager for it to pass by. As to when you were a kid, you know, you just, even though maybe you were looking forward to your birthday, you you know, you weren't always thinking about it. You just go play and things would occupy your mind and you go on adventures and stuff and just that's crazy how we just grow up and a lot of people I don't know is it wrong to latch on to that child side of you part of you is that like immaturity or is that because it's also creativeness 
and confidence in a way because as a, as a kid you're very confident you don't really care you just do you don't care who sees you you just do it like you want to dance you want to jump it's crazy and yeah So yeah, so recap of today's episode. We chatted a bit with Maury. Maury in the hell. And we read a few pages of Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. Who was a who is a uh, psychologist primarily in logotherapy. And he was in Auschwitz and survived it. And provided a I mean I guess bias Because how can you separate yourself from that But very Very From a A a scientific approach Psychological approach He didn't go into it in the pages that we covered but that's pretty much what the book is going to be about him going to death the ma- the experience of a prisoner in Auschwitz and like what the meaning of all suffering is like what's the point of suffering and life I think before I started reading uh, to you guys in the prefix he said uh, they say uh, life is suffering and suffering is overcoming obstacles or something like that. Yeah. Then we also talked about cartels. And a gore video. By the way, what happened to gore? I might be a fucking weirdo, but I used to watch Best Gore. And... Like, me and my friend would send each other like, cartel beheadings or shootouts and shit like that. Mm-hmm. I remember being in middle school, and everybody was talking about three guys, one hammer. Something like that. And I saw it, and I didn't even flinch. And now I see it as an adult. Like, I saw it, like, a few years ago, and I, I couldn't fin- I couldn't even... I just I couldn't watch it anymore. But uh, ever since... They did that internet thing where the government got involved. I forgot what it was called. I don't know. They're kind of like censoring the internet. It was something like that back in like 2018 or 19. Back in 2017, I think. And um, and now you can't really access any gore websites. Which I guess is good. Because you don't, you don't watch that kind of shit. Because... You watch too much, I don't know, fuck with you. I speak from experience. Like, I wouldn't, I I didn't watch it, like, too often either. It was just, like, maybe two weeks that I would watch a few videos, you know? And in some days, I don't know. But you start realizing, like, you start consuming that kind of shit. And you attract negativity or you attract death. Because it's violent death at that, at least I feel. And it's crazy, like, I don't know. I feel it's a guy thing, because I don't think girls watch gore videos. 
but I, I'm pretty sure, like me, like I mean, I would send it to my my friends, you know. So I think it's a it's a guy thing. But yeah, that's my two cents. Also, at the beginning of this episode, you guys are gonna hear. I'm gonna. You guys are gonna hear uh, the shout out that. Um, fuck! 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 How am I forgetting his name? I sw- how the fuck am I forgetting his name? That's the boy, Thug Nasty Mitchell. Yup, Bryce Mitchell. The shout out that Bryce Mitchell gave the podcast. Um, so. I don't know how because it's a video. I don't know how I'll make it audio and then put it in the podcast, but I'm going to do it. All right, guys? And uh, it's going to be dope. Um, hopefully, I get more shout-outs for the podcast from, you know, like famous people or something. So it has that credibility, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Um, I'm going to end the episode there. And I did go on tangents, but, hey, it's my episode. And if Walls could talk, they'd talk. They'd go on tangents because they're fucking Walls. They don't know any better. So I'm going to end it here. You guys, it's uh, Wednesday, uh, July 27th, 2022. And at the time of ending this episode, it is 9.20. So you guys have a good night. Um, I got work tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, you guys have a good night. If you're listening to this in the daytime, have a great day. Let's get it.